John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. We'll continue our study this morning. The focus will be verses 17 to 21. We looked last week at verse 16. The most well-known verse in all of the Bible. If you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Because oftentimes, although it is the most well-known portion of Scripture in all the Bible, we have a tendency to overlook the depth of the truth within that verse. And we never want to be so over-familiar, quote-unquote, with the truths of Scripture that we miss the depth of the meaning of the Word of God. It's one thing to know what the Word says, it's another to know what it means by what it says. And here this morning we'll look at the reason and the results of Christ's incarnation. The, reasons of the, the reason and the results of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the fact that God came out of heaven, lowered Himself to become a human being. He became man. That's the incarnation. The purpose, the glorious cross. The cross. His life is the message of the cross. Our lives ought to be the message of the cross. God's grace poured out upon His people. God's power revealed through His work on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. A cross-centered way of life is the very essence of the Christian worldview. The finished work of Christ, that is our worldview. A worldview, in its simplest form, answers three basic questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And what happens when we die? Where do we come from? Why are we here? What happens when we die? Whatever your worldview is determines the way in which you think and the way in which you live. Regardless of what one may declare, regardless of what one says so boldly, your way of life and philosophy of God and eternity is the result of your worldview. Nothing more, nothing less. Now much of the church today is suffering greatly as it has bought into the lies of the world. Now the church as a whole has become more of a reflection of the culture than being the light in the midst of culture. The church has been in infected because God's people especially leaders of the church, have allowed the culture into the church. Not the people from the culture, but the methods of the culture. The way the world does what it does. It's been allowed into the church. 
We're no longer the light that we could be as a corporate body, as individuals in a community or in a culture. But what's been allowed to enter into the church is relativistic theology, that truth is relative. Well, Jesus is God to me, but not necessarily to you, and therefore we should just agree to disagree, and we can all worship happily. But that's not the gospel. That's not the Bible. That's not the truth. And if that's your worldview, you may not be in Christ, you likely are not in Christ, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Man-centered philosophies have been allowed into the church. Mimicking the methodologies of Hollywood and adopting them into church life, church worship, and the family that make up the church. Now it used to be that the art world was merely an imitation of culture. But today, the world spends billions of dollars to mimic the art world. Billions of dollars. Inundated with information all day. I was at a ball game last week, a Padre game last week. And I was sat there and the person I was with, I leaned over and I said, you know something? There's not one still quiet moment when you go into a public arena like this. You are inundated with music, with imagery, every moment. Either the ball game's going on and you're being inundated with some image and it, it's all so, it just lures you in. Can't imagine what it was like to go to a ball game in the 1920s when you didn't have all of that technology. You know, in between innings, there was probably just a kind of calmer, a still. People talk to one another. <laughs> just bump, 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 you know? <laughs> it's amazing. That stuff is being allowed into the church. Methods that the world uses to entertain are being allowed into the church of Jesus Christ. Polluting it. And the church is bought right into these lies. So there's very little distinction whatsoever between the church and the culture that is condemned. The world is condemned because of their unbelief, as we will see. And here we are, our Lord's dialogue here with Nicodemus. And in verses 2 through 9 is one of the most crucial sections in all of the Bible. Because it expresses most clearly the truth of regeneration by the Holy Spirit alone. No one will be in heaven that's not regenerated. No one will enter heaven who has not been born again. We're born with a nature that is dead, corrupt, depraved. That nature must be supernaturally changed and only God can do it. No one is good enough to stand in the presence of Almighty God. That sin nature that we're born with must be radically transformed, and that is by grace alone. Therefore, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You must be born again, Jesus said. And that stresses the fact that salvation is the supernatural work of God alone. Because only He can make that radical change. No one can ascend to that. It's by the supernatural work of God. We've spent weeks on that. If you missed any of those messages, you can go back to our website and listen, and listen in. Regeneration makes clear the difference between Christians and non-Christians. We're one or the other. Either born again or dead in trespasses and sins. Either saved from condemnation or under condemnation. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. Some people teach that today. 
Some men stand at pulpits and they teach that Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord. Okay, Jesus is Lord no matter what you think, no matter what I think. Amen? He is Lord. And one is either submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because He is Lord, because they've been supernaturally regenerated, or not. If you've been supernaturally regenerated, it proves that you are one of His sheep. And what do sheep do to the Master? They follow. They follow. Cheap theology, relativistic theology, truth is relative, God is a hub, there's many spokes to God, Jesus is one of those spokes, so long as you're sincere, you're going to make it to heaven. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. In order for the church to be the very salt and light that she was commanded to be, there must be a refamiliarization of God within the professing community. Professing Christians. We must place our focus on Him. Upon who He is and who His Word declares Him to be. And that's why I love this church because that's the hunger that this church has. That's the passion of this church. R.C. Sproul is quoted as saying that we don't know who we are until we know who God is. We don't understand who Christ is until we know who the Father is. Jesus said in John 10.30, I and my Father are... One. He said to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. All, of the, all that the Father is, Jesus is in essence and nature. All that the Holy Spirit is that indwells you, believer, is the essence and nature of who Jesus Christ is and God the Father. But there's a myriad of people today who claim to have a quote-unquote faith. They claim to know Christ. They claim to be a Christian. But however, such a claim today requires further investigation. 82% of Americans claim to be Christian. There's people who claim to be Christian who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. There's people who claim to be Christians who deny the virgin birth. There's people who claim to be Christian who deny the resurrection. There's people who claim to be Christian that, that, that deny the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That the atonement did it all, nothing to be added. Jesus said it is finished. People deny those essential truths and claim to be Christian. It's the truth of the Word of God that shines the light on the reality of one's spiritual condition. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the... What? Heart. Intentions. Motives. It will all be revealed in the last day. This is the sword that cuts deep. The uncompromised word of God fillets wide open the heart of every man and woman. And if men don't teach the Word of God with authority by the power of the Holy Spirit, how on earth is this sword going to do its work? The Bible instructs men, as Paul did to Timothy, to rightly divide the Word of Truth, to cut it straight, bring it to the people. Because it's the Word of God that does the transforming work. It cuts deep. It's the light of Christ, the very Word Himself. Jesus is the Word. When people hear it, when they see that light, they desperately run from it because they love darkness. They love their sin. Before God saved you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you loved your sin. You loved the darkness. 
I loved the darkness. I loved my sin and I ran from the truth. I veiled myself from the truth. It was only by the supernatural work of God that could break through the hardness of my heart and breathe spiritual life into me. In our study this morning, we will look at the reason and the results of Christ's incarnation. Last time we studied John 3.16, God's worldwide, infinite, and unconditional love. God so loved, so loved, is an immeasurable love. Everlasting to everlasting is the so of so loved. He so loved you in Christ that before the foundation of the earth, He what? He chose you. He chose you. And then that love entered into time and space where we dwell and it manifested itself fully and completely on Calvary's hill, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the so loved. That's the so of so loved. That he so loved that he gave. That's an unconditional love. It saves people from out of all nations. That Christ came to die and his death was 100% effective. He didn't come to make salvation possible. He came to make it certain for all who will ever believe. All who've ever believed in eternity, going back to creation, until His return, He made it certain. The one drop of the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to cover the sins of all who will ever believe. Amen? The precious, holy, sinless blood of the Lamb of God. God's love is sacrificial in that He gave His only begotten Son to whoever will believe. This is a rescuing love. Rescuing you and I from perishing. Perishing. God's love is eternal. It's never ending. Whosoever believes declares that it's a free gift. Free of charge. There's nothing you can add to that, brothers and sisters. Amen? It's free of charge. Although it cost Him everything, it cost Him His one and only begotten Son. The reason for the Incarnation was not to distribute condemnation. But rather to save sinners like you and me. That was the purpose of Christ coming. Not to condemn, but to save. Now, condemnation of unbelievers is not God's ultimate purpose. He doesn't rejoice in that. It's not His pleasure. Although, very important, it is the serious negative result of the light coming into the world. As we'll see in a moment. That is the negative result. And that leads us into our study this morning in verse 17. John 3, verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be, what? Saved. Look at the first portion there, that He did not come to condemn. So John now uses the thought of judgment to bring out God's loving purpose. He uses a negative statement, and then it's followed by a positive. He did not come to condemn, but he came to save. Now remember, very important, this is a dialogue that had begun in verse 2, when Nicodemus came representing the Sanhedrin, representing the Jewish leaders of the day, representing the Jewish scholars of the day, the religious leaders of the day. And he said in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus didn't say thank you very much. They recognized that he was from God, but what they didn't recognize is that he was God. To be worshipped. To be worshipped. 
So that dialogue concludes is a monologue. You know, he says, how can these things be? Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. How can these things be? How's a, mother, how's a man my age enter a second time into my mother's womb? Jesus said, is the wind blows to and fro? You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. That is the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. You don't know where the wind stirs up. We don't know where it ends. The same is true with the work of the Spirit as far as your salvation goes. You don't know exactly how it started, but you, there's evidence of it. The wind blows. You only see the evidence of it. How can these things be? He didn't know. Are you a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and you do not know these things? Right? He should have known these things. He was religious. He was outward. All of his religiosity was outward. There was no relationship with the living God. It was all outward. So Nicodemus stops talking. No dialogue. Now it's monologue. Is Jesus talking. This truth that Jesus did not come to condemn but to save, this would have been a blow to Nicodemus and the Jews that he was representing. A strike right to their theological head. Christ did not come to condemn the world. You see, G the Jews had this, this common idea that when Messiah came, his first act would be to wipe out all the heathen and Gentiles. Then only Israel would be saved. God's elect nation, his covenant people. But they were missing a bigger point, which we'll see in a moment. They had the idea when Messiah arrived that it would be salvation and glory for Israel and condemnation for everyone else. The prophet Isaiah, God speaks through him in Amos, uh, the prophet Amos, God speaks through him in Amos 5, verse 18, says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. I was thinking about fleeing from a lion this morning. I was thinking about a lion faces you, he's super hungry, you're the only food in sight. You run, you escape, you're standing on a big cleft of rock somewhere, you're looking down, and there he is, he can't get you, he can no longer smell you because you're above him, and you turn around, you're so stoked, that means really super happy, you're so stoked that you turn around and there's a nine foot bear facing you. Misery. Misery. Or, as though he went into a house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bites him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So Amos is saying here that the day of the Lord may not be the exciting light that you expect it to be, Israel, but it just may well be darkness for you. Not only did Jesus not come to judge and destroy the Gentiles, so he flips the script here. He actually came and ended up blinding the Jews, didn't he, as a, na as a national entity. Because of their disbelief. If you turn and look in John chapter 12, in beginning in verse 37, although he, Jesus Christ, had done so many signs before them, they what? Did not believe in him. Supernatural signs always pointed to something greater than themselves. Authenticating the Messiah. He was God. He could do whatever he wanted. But they did not believe. 
John goes on to say that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they what? They could not believe. They would not and they could not. Because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Verse 47, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. As we'll see in a moment, they're already condemned because of their unbelief. So God's purpose in sending His Son was not condemnation. He came not in order to simply redeem Israel and condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. It means all peoples of all nations from every culture and nation in the world. Not the whole world, but people from throughout the world. Again, he didn't come to make salvation possible. He came to make it certain for those that are his, chosen before the foundation of the earth. Now, as we learned last time, he came to save his sheep. He calls his sheep. They know his voice. And what do they do? They follow. They follow. Now, this is something that Nicodemus and the Jews should have known. Because it was written in the Abrahamic Covenant. Genesis 12.3 says, And in you, speaking to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we have the covenant of grace. God graced man from the very beginning. If you look back at Genesis 3, verse 15, when man fell, God made the promise of the promised one. That the heel of the serpent, or the heel of he who was to come would be bruised, and the result would be the crushing of the head of the serpent. That was the promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now that covenant, that covenantal promise, was given to one man, and his name was Abraham. Now think, if you will, for a moment, of a funnel. You've got the wide mouth of the funnel, and then you have the spout. And you pour the liquid in the, in, in, in the wide portion of the funnel, and it comes in to whether you're filling oil in your car or whatnot. Take that funnel, flip it upside down so the spout's on top. Just have that image in your mind. The spout's on top, it's narrow, and it broadens out. Take another funnel, wide mouth to wide mouth, and put them together. You've got the spout on top, a spout on the bottom, and, and, and it widens out in the middle. That covenantal promise was given to one man, and that one man was Abraham. And through that one man was promised a son. And through that son would come another son, twins. And through that son would come twelve sons. Through that twelve sons would come twelve tribes. Through the twelve tribes would come a nation, Israel. And then it would funnel back down. The purpose of that nation was Messiah. And then that covenant of promise was fulfilled by Messiah. Jesus Christ. And it comes out the other end and it spreads throughout the whole world. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We are all one in Christ. Same covenant from the very beginning. The Jews should have known this. That all the families of the earth should have been blessed. Nicodemus should have known this. John 5.46 For if you believe Moses you would believe me. Moses penned Genesis. They believed the law. They should have known this covenant. He wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? His reason for coming was to save sinners like you and me from all over the world. 
Amen? From all over the world. He didn't come to condemn, but he came in order that, next portion of the verse, verse 17, that the world through him might be saved. Very important. As a believer that is covered by the blood and the forgiveness, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, you're cleansed, brothers and sisters. If you're in Christ, you are totally forgiven. Cleansed. Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. The king of the universe, the creator, lowered himself, not only to become a human being, but he rides humbly into Jerusalem to the cross. The savior to bring salvation. He didn't bring the sword of condemnation and judgment. Judgment was laid out upon him on that cross. He came to bring salvation. Luke 19:10 For the son of man has not come to seek and for the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. You were once lost if you're in Christ now you've been found and you're in him and he's in you. He seeks out his lost sheep until they are found. He sought you out, he found you and he delivered you. He breathed life into you. Amen. He breathed life into me. That's grace. He did not come to condemn but to save. The Baptist cried out, John the Baptist, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? In 1 John 2.2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Here is John, same author, writing to this body of believers. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins only, but also the whole world. So, the context there is no different than John 3.16. The satisfying sacrifice of the Son is sufficient in saving not only Apostle John and those he's writing this letter to, but also other believers, redeemed believers throughout the whole world. For God came not to condemn, but to save. He knows His sheep. His sheep will eventually hear His voice and they will follow. And He came to lay down His life for that flock. To make salvation 100% certain. Because his work on the cross was 100% successful. Amen? It was no failure. It was success. That God, the God-man laid down his life. Jesus Christ is the only valid sacrifice that is gifted to believers. He's it. There's no other way. He is all there is. And he's the only one through him that is devoid of any condemnation. If you're in Christ, you'll never be judged for your sin. If you're in Christ, you're washed, you're cleansed, you're justified, declared free from all blame. You stand perfectly righteous in his sight. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Amen? That's what we rejoice over. Outside of Jesus Christ, as it's revealed through Scripture, there is nothing less than condemnation awaiting unbelievers. Because you're in Christ, you are not condemned. You're not judged because you're saved. There's no condemnation towards you. There's none set against you. You're free. The final judgment. As far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, so are your sins. Separated. If you get in an airplane, you start heading east, you'll be heading east the rest of your life. If you get an airplane and you head north and go towards the North Pole, eventually you'll be heading south, won't you? North and south meet. East and west never meet. Your sins are separated as far as east is from the west. 
That's the love bestowed upon you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Now, not only are you justified, which means you're declared free from all blame, you'll never stand before the judgment of Almighty God for your sin. No accusation will be brought up against you in, the, in that great day of judgment. It's paid for. It's done. Jesus said it is finished. You can also walk free right now on this earth, free of guilt and shame because of the cross. Because of the same work, you can be freed from guilt and shame today, from condemnation today. I'm going to ask that you bear with me for a moment, okay? Because I'm going to digress a bit. And I want to blow off the contextual course because I'm all about context. Very important. But I think a slight detour could be very beneficial to the body this morning. Now, Scripture teaches us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses us, what? Night and day. He accuses you. One blunder. Accuse, oh, see, he professes, you, Lord, he professes you God. He professes you God. Look at his life. Look at her life. Look at their actions. Look at, look at what they do. Look at what they don't do. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says this, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows what? All things. Beloved, who's that? The beloved is the body of Christ. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now this is a condemnation that means to find fault. To take note of. God knows His true sheep and He wants His true sheep to have assurance of their salvation. Did you know that? If you're in Christ, God wants you to be assured of that. He wants you to rest in that because that's His work. That's not yours. That's His work. So the question for us is, how can we know when our conscience is repeating the voice of God or it's repeating the accusations of the enemy? Have you ever struggled with that? Come on, somebody. How do I know that this uneasy, depressing feeling that's deep down in my heart, how do I know if it's the Holy Spirit with conviction and not the accusation and condemnation of the adversary, the devil? Now, Satan can do a work to sear the conscience, can he? He can. He will attempt to sear your conscience, just like the liars of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Their conscience has been seared like with a hot iron. I was reminded of that this morning when I put this shirt on. It returned from the dry cleaner and the little plastic dealios in the collar here. It was like bent from the heat, the intense heat of the dry cleaner. Now it's all wrinkled and I pulled the thing out. It was all twisted like this. Threw them away, put new ones in. And it reminded me of that. Those can never be used again. It's just done unless you put it under the heat again and iron it out or something. Satan will work to sear the conscience that we violate conscience so often that we become callous to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if he can't get one that way, and much of the world is like that, everyone has a conscience, believers and unbelievers, our conscience just has a higher standard because we have the, the residency of the Holy Spirit within us, right? So the standard's higher. Now, if he can't sear the conscience, he's going to seek out a way in which he can tweak or taint your view of God. He wants to paint a picture in your mind that misrepresents God. A God who's impatient. A God who's not really for us, but a God who's against us. 
A God who's just waiting for us to make a blunder to crush us. That's how he wants you to think of God. A God who's not slow to anger. A God, who, a God who's not abounding in loving kindness, but rather he's a hard-driven taskmaster just waiting to crack the whip, right? That's what the devil wants you to think about God. And that's a gross misinterpretation of our gracious Heavenly Father and the finished work of His Son. So people are typically in one of three places. And it's likely that there's these three groups represented here this morning in this body of believers. There's some whose conscience is it's so long seared. And I have doubt to believe if someone that far gone can even really be a believer, if they can remain in that condition. That's another message there. But some people are perhaps in the process of having a silenced conscience. They violated conscience so often that the very things that used to be very convicting to them in their walk is prompted by the work of the Holy Spirit. They violated that so often, now it's no big deal. It's no big deal. We laugh along with the world. We go along with the world. Things that used to grieve the Spirit of God no longer grieve. We're far from the mind of God. That's the danger. Callous to the voice of God. And if that's you, believer, you're in dangerous waters. You're dead in the water. You need to cry out to God. You need to get back to the cross and repent and ask for His mercy. There's another group whose conscience is very much alive, ever sensitive, but they see God as this impatient taskmaster. And you struggle under this cloud of guilt. There's always this cloud of doom around you. Everywhere you go, everything you do, you feel depressed, you feel broken, you feel defeated. You confess your sins, but you feel like you never do it well enough for God to cleanse you as His Scriptures promise. You love your brothers and sisters. That's really the context of that first John chapter. You love the brethren. You love the work of the ministry. You love the Lord. But yet you feel as though you can never do good enough. Now, if that's you, you must get back to the cross and you have to stop looking at your failures and you must begin to look at the work of Christ. Look at His work. And if you get your eyes affixed on Christ and what He did and what He did on your behalf, believer, you'll soon start to overlook your failures and you'll rejoice in what He has done and your lifestyle will follow. And then you'll have joy. You'll have joy in the cross. You'll have joy in His redeeming work. You'll have joy in the atonement. You'll have joy from abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not everlasting condemnation of the great white throne, nor condemnation now. You walk in victory. Third type of people are those whose conscience is also alive, totally in tune with God, with who He is, that He is holy, that He is compassionate, that He is gracious, and that He cleanses and He forgives. You've already been forgiven. Positional forgiveness, once and all for, and forever. But we need that daily foot washing, don't we? Remember Jesus washed the feet of the twelve, came to Peter, Lord, far be it for you to wash my feet. Well, if you, I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Oh, well, then, nonetheless, then wash my head, wash my whole body. No, 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 no. You don't need a bath. You only need a foot washing. 
You see, in Christ, you've been washed completely. You've been bathed in Christ. But we walk through this dirty old world, this sin culture that we live in, and we pick up sometimes the pollution of the world, don't we? Told you about that game I went to the other night. All night long, I was singing some song that was on. It was in my head. I forget what it was now, praise God. But you know how it is, amen? We pick up some of those behaviors sometimes. We become kind of callous to it. Well, that's really no big deal. But when you're sensitive to the move of the Spirit and you, 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 you confess that, He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. That's exercising faith. We must exercise faith. And if you walk with the cloud of doom, believer, exercise the faith of understanding what Scripture says, knowing that your confidence is in God. It's in God. And your heart won't condemn you. Because you're showing the love for the brethren. Which is a product of love for God. Amen? Back, back to the original context. The reason for the coming was not to condemn but to save. The context, salvation by grace alone. Salvation by grace alone. Your sanctification is also by grace alone. That's why went over that portion of Scripture as well. Your justification is by grace alone. Your sanctification, your growing in Christ, is by grace alone. And your glorification, when you enter into heaven, that's by grace alone. It's all grace. It's all grace. That's living under the shadow of the cross. The shadow of the cross. A cross-centered life. Now, in, in verses 18 and following, we see the results of His coming. The results of His coming. And it produces for us three contrasting realities. Number one is that of belief and unbelief. Contrast number two, judgment and pardon. Contrast number three, man's love for darkness and his hatred for the light. Love darkness and they hate, hate the light. First contrast, belief and unbelief. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned what? Already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So John proceeds to bring out the importance of faith and notice his habit of repetition here. He uses believe three times in that one verse. Good teachers are repetitious. They repeat, they repeat, they repeat. I will repeat justification by faith alone until the day I die. Positional righteousness until the day I die. And you'll be able to teach justification by faith alone, but by God's grace alone. With assurance as to the authority of Scripture. So we see the focus here on the verb believe. Believe. To believe is to believe in the name or believe into. To believe in the name of Christ is to believe into Christ. Not about Christ. This is trust and commitment. Salvation by God's grace, in it we see a transfer of trust from the sinner, no longer trusting myself, but entrusting myself to Christ. It's a transfer of that trust. He's Lord. He's my God. He is God. I follow my God. To believe into. You know, Romans 6 says that we've been baptized, what? Into Christ. Into Him. It's very important, this verse. 
In John chapter 3, look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son, what? Has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Believing into. So these verses show that for John, the author, faith and conduct are very closely related. Not that conduct earns you salvation, but conduct or an abiding life in Christ is a product of His grace that's bestowed upon you. It's an outflowing of His work in you. Those who believe, obey. By His grace. Amen? Only by grace. Those who believe, who obey. They obey. Those who don't believe, in fact, do not obey. So this, is, this verb is a present participle indicating a continual attitude, an ongoing lifestyle of being in Christ. Being in Him. We looked at that in detail a few weeks ago. Again, we looked at belief and unbelief, what that looks like. You can go back on our website as well. I don't want to belabor the point. But belief and unbelief lead us to the next contrasting point, point number two, and it's that of judgment and pardon. Also in verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only begotten Son of God. Now, if you believe there's no condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who think about Christ or those who are all about Christ or those who go to church and talk about Christ. It's those who are in Christ. You must be in Him. And He must be in you. You can't be in Him if He's not in you. And for those who are in Him, there's no condemnation. You've been pardoned. Set free. Free in Christ. Free from judgment. Free from condemnation. Now, although this act of condemnation is final judgment, there's going to be a great day of reckoning. There is that great white throne judgment. And all sinners outside of Christ will stand in judgment for everything they've ever done and haven't done. It's more of what they haven't done. And what they haven't done is they haven't lived a perfect life. To get to heaven, you have to live a perfect life. No one can get to heaven because no one can live a perfect life. They're all sin, sinful. They're more absolutely, totally depraved. They're unable to meet God's standard of holy perfection. The reason that you'll enter in is because His perfection has been imputed to you. It's been placed upon your account. Because all of your sins were placed upon Him. That's the great exchange. So... Although the act of condemnation and final judgment is yet future, notice there's a pre-sentencing reality of it right now. They're condemned because they don't believe. They're condemned. Unbelief is the trial, so to speak. Criminal trial. The great white throne is the execution of the sentence. And if you're not in Him, if you're not a true believer, you're condemned already. We all, in Christ, were once condemned, amen? But by God's grace, while we were dead in sins and trespasses, He saved us. He reached down to the depth. It's like being pinned to the bottom of the ocean. Not like I said. It's not like you're drowning. Oh, let's throw Him a life ring. No. You're pinned to the bottom of the ocean. Dead. 
lungs full of water. There for years, nothing but a skeleton with a chain on it. He reached down and he birthed life into you. That's salvation. It's not a sickness, it's death that he saved you from. Spiritual death. So they're judged now because they don't believe. Everyone who rejects the life that Christ offers, they remain in death and they remain in judgment. Faith is life, brothers and sisters, amen? And Christ is life. He is the light and He is the life. He's in you, you have life. And that life is eternal because He's the very source of life. He has life in and of Himself. And that life is in you by God's grace. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So this past tense of being condemned already is used here decisively to express this idea that all unbelievers are in a condition of complete ruin. There's not a little bit of good in them to where they can climb up a ladder and find favor in the sight of God. They're dead. Dead. You were dead. I was dead. That's grace. That will make you much, that much more thankful for your salvation. Come on. That's the depth of salvation of understanding of our salvation that we ought to be thankful for. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Glory to God. There's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no other way to escape this judgment other than coming to Christ. As the serpent was lifted up, that brazen serpent in, the, in Numbers 21, that Israel, who had been bitten by the snakes, the poisonous snakes, to be saved, they had to crawl through the camp to look upon the brazen serpent lifted up by Moses. Jesus said, the same is true for me. That was a representation of me, he said. Because the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. And the only way to be saved from the sting and the bite of the viper of sin is Christ and His finished work on the cross. You must come to Him. If you're not in Christ, you must come to Him. People who don't come to Christ, they remain condemned. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. If you're not in Christ, I plead with you as Paul pleaded with unbelievers, come to Christ. Intellectual assent and agreeing with what he did and who he was and what he's done doesn't get you in. You must be born again. And you can only plead to God that He caused you to be born again. Plead. Cry out for His grace. Repent of your sin. Those people who knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, deny the deity of Jesus Christ, they claim to serve God. They claim to know God. They're condemned. 2 John 9 says this, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. If they don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, they don't have the Father, no matter what they profess. It's Christ and Christ alone that there is life. You know, this thing that's meant to, intended for love, Christ coming, something that's intended for love can easily be turned into condemnation. D.A. Carson writes this, and I quote, Already in need of a Savior before God's Son comes on His saving mission, this person, unbeliever, compounds his or her guilt by not believing in the name of that Son. End quote. They're already condemned, and by, and by rejecting and rejecting, becoming more callous, they compound that guilt and that condemnation. 
And you brothers and sisters have been freed from that by God's grace. We're going to rejoice over the communion table this morning because of that work, His work. He's the only way. He is deity. He is God. Carson goes on to tell this cool little story. He said, it's like the arrogant art critic who walks into an art gallery. He looks at a masterpiece and he mocks it. He approaches the gallery guard and he says, I don't think so much of your paintings. The guardian responds, sir, these paintings are not on trial. You are. It's not the masterpiece that's condemned, it's the critic. Jesus is the masterpiece. The Son of God, the only begotten. All the beauty that's in the Son. The deity. He is deity. People say, well, Jesus is fine, but I don't believe in his deity. Well, he's not on trial. You are. And you're therefore condemned if you don't believe what he's claimed of himself. You see? So they're condemned. Christ isn't on trial. The unbelieving world is. And the reason that they don't believe, and the reason that they're condemned, contrast number three, is man's love for darkness and his hatred for the light. Verses 19 and 20. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men, what do they do? Loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The light of the Word of God exposes the depravity of man. It shows the stench within. It reveals the motives and the intentions of the heart and it cuts right to who you really are. You're in Christ. You've been washed of that. Cleansed. Transformed. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed. All things have been made what? New. You're a new creature in Christ. Rejoice in that. Fix your eyes on the cross. Walk under the power of the cross. Stand in the shadow of the cross. The finished work of Christ. His work. Get your eyes off of your work. Get it on His. I've seen t-shirts. You know, what are you doing for God? You know what? God does not need me standing up here. God does not need you. He does not need me. We're here by grace. We get to serve. Isn't that amazing? We get to serve. We get to worship. We get to partake in communion. What a joy. But the reason for the unbelief is that men love darkness. Coming to Christ is the one way John describes faith. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He is the bread and he is the water of life. He is the spiritual bread and water. He is it. He's it. There's no other way. Well, I think he's a good ethical moral teacher that we can follow. No, he's the only way for your wretched soul to be saved. Period. No one comes to the light if they hate the light. We see that in verse 20. So before anyone can come to faith and to that light, there must be that deep transformation that takes place by God's grace alone, you see? And that brings you out to the light. That brings you out wanting to desire the light. Because there's nothing to hide now, is there? Saving faith in the gospel is the act of a new heart. The product of love. His love bestowed upon you, manifest in and through us in a love for Him, in a love for the brethren, love in the body. It's a product of being saved by grace. Granted the faith to believe. 
That's why he says in 1 John that if we don't love, we don't know God. We don't know God. We can talk all we want. And have not passed from death to life. If that love for God is not there, we haven't passed from death to life. If we don't love our brothers and we say that we're Christian, we don't love the body, we haven't passed from death to life. We're deceiving ourselves. Amen? judgment is not that they don't believe because they can't get it but rather that they love their sin they love to dwell in the darkness they love it it's like rats and cockroaches that come out at night out of the corners and the crevices and the cracks you turn on the light what do they do they scurry and scatter back to their little holes don't they second place I ever rented in my life I turned the kitchen light on in the morning whoo to my surprise Filled with little cockroaches. I was like, oh, what have I done? Click. All over the place. Within three minutes, you couldn't see one of them. That's the condition. Sinful men and women love their sin. When the light's turned on, you know what it's like before you were saved. Someone that was bearing the light of Jesus Christ, you ran. I ran. You didn't want to hear it. You didn't want to see it. It's too convicting. But once God saved you, He brought you to the place of saving faith. There's nothing to hide now, is there? We come to the light. We're drawn to the light. We love the light. And if you're a Christian and there's something in your life that is kind of hidden over, hidden in the corner, oh, I got all this stuff in the open, but this one thing here, I'll just keep my hand on top of that. If God brings conviction upon your heart about that thing, go deal with it, with Him. Get rid of it. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and cast it from you. Amen? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck that bad boy out and throw it away from you. Figuratively speaking. If there's something in your life that is a draw for you and it pulls you into sinful patterns of life, cut the cord. Throw it away. Bring it out in the light. There's a weakness, gentlemen, or ladies nowadays, like the whole pornography thing, internet. Disconnect. Sever it. Cast it from you. Bring it out in the light. Because He's light and He's life and He's in you. So it's not that they don't get it. It's not that they don't believe or they can't believe. They love darkness. Romans chapter 1 talks about those who've been turned over to a depraved mind. And John goes on to give this, or Paul rather, goes on to give this long list of what that type of lifestyle looks like. And he says... They're filled with unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, and the list goes on. And he wraps it up like this. Not only do they do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. They might not be waving their, their, their uh, homosexual flag of uh, the rainbow colors down at the gay pride parade a couple weeks ago, but they rather instead stand on the sideline and go, Oh, good for you. Not only do they do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. Well, I wouldn't think of it. But, rah, rah. They love their sin. They're not about to step out. Only by God's grace can you step out. The only way you can step out and come to that light is by the regenerating work of Almighty God, which brings us to our face and thanks for all that He has done. Amen? They're not about to be exposed. They dwell under the rock of iniquity and they creep out at night. 
But disciples of Jesus Christ are drawn to the light. We can ask ourselves these questions as I'm wrapping up. Do I love the things that God loves and hate the things that He hates? Do I love the things that God loves and do I hate the things that He hates? Do I call good that which God calls good? Do I call evil that which God calls evil? Do I strive to glorify the one who's due all the glory? Or do I take it upon myself? Do I want to be lifted up or do I lift up Christ? If you do, you know there might be a couple areas of correction in there for all of us, but if that is the genuine desire of your heart, and you do those things and you're quick to repent, you know you're washed, you're cleansed, you're justified, you're sanctified, you one day will be glorified, that's evidence of saving faith. That's evidence of salvation, brothers and sisters. Rest in that. Be assured in that. And then our last point, verse 21, is the glorious evidence of salvation. Living truth is drawn to the light, demonstrating that it is not only from God, but it is for Him. It's from Him and it's for Him. Verse 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may clearly be seen, that they have been done in God. He does the truth. Or, during the, or doing the truth is not referring to some people doing good by nature to trying to find favor in the sight of God. They're doing good because it's a product of the good work of God in them. It's responsive. And only one can get the glory. Who is it? God. The one who was lifted up as the serpent was lifted up. 1 John 1, 6 and 7 says this, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from how much sin? All. Very good. All sin. These are the people that God has pulled from spiritual ruin. That's us. Sin are saved by grace. And we grow to learn to hate the things that He hates. Because that light is illuminated upon the motives of our heart. And the desire is to serve the one who was lifted up on our behalf. Great prayer for us all. Psalm 139.23 Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I've been praying that prayer and I'm going to go on the study this next month for myself, my own heart, my own motives. How much integrity do I really have? How much am I really concerned with you being glorified through me? How much glory am I attempting to take for myself? It'll be interesting to see what he reveals. Finally, Ephesians 2.10 For we, that's the body of Jesus Christ, this is believers only, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, created in Him, which what? God prepared when? God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He works salvation out in, we work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The only way you can work it out is if He worked it in. You can't work for it, you work from it. Come on, somebody. Grace. The point for faith is that it comes to a certain heart and it's described like this. Faith is a gift because of God's grace. And Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? 
They follow me. I know my sheep. Faith therefore must be of such a nature that it produces that kind of following. There's a sheep follows a shepherd. And you don't become a sheep by believing. Did you know that? You don't become a sheep by believing. You can only believe because you are his sheep. You were once lost, but he found you. The question is today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, truly according to the scriptures as revealed this morning, you're not his sheep. You must cry out for his mercy. Come to Christ. Come to the cross and cry out for his mercy that your soul be saved and you move from condemnation to no condemnation. Be justified by the grace of God. And you follow Christ who is led, led as a lamb to the slaughter. And he makes you righteous and clean. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Individuals, saved by grace, but unified as one body in Christ. By faith. May we never forget what was accomplished on Calvary's hill. That you came not to condemn but to save. And we stand righteous in your sight because of that broken body, your broken body, your shed blood on our behalf. We rejoice. We thank you. We praise you. I pray for this dear body of believers that there would be a rejoicing today, a new day of understanding as to the eternal power of the cross as you, our Savior, was lifted up. For Father, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll empower us by grace to live a life in response to the glorious cross, the Son of God, the only begotten, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, and together we all say, Amen.